From Upstate Medical University in Syracuse, New York, I'm Amber Smith. This is HealthLink on Air. Gynecologic oncology researchers are testing a surgery that may help women who have a high genetic risk for developing ovarian cancer. Here to tell about this study is Dr. Rinki Agarwal. She's an associate professor of obstetrics and gynecology at Upstate and also the medical director of the Upstate Cancer Center's gynecologic oncology program. Thank you for your time, Dr. Agarwal. Thank you for having me, Amber. Besides that, I also want to mention that I am the director for the genetics program uh, for the Upstate Cancer Center, and I serve in that capacity as a board-certified geneticist. So this study that we are here to talk about and focus on is very near and dear to me from both avenues of my training. It sounds like it ties together nicely because the study focuses on women who know they are at an increased risk for ovarian cancer. Can you explain how a woman would know what her risk is? So women may come to get this information through multiple streams. Hopefully the way it would work for a majority of women at risk would be because they have familial risk that was identified and that information was shared by family members with patients at risk and they go through testing. The other way that women find out about the risk is because they've had cancer themselves, either breast cancer or ovarian cancer, and they are going through the process of evaluating the reason for getting the cancer and go through testing. And that's the other significant way. In our practice, we see a very large number of patients who are coming to us for evaluation on the genetic side of my practice because of a strong family history. And we evaluate them and then we end up identifying patients who are at risk. And then they are referred to the different specialties that would address those risks and help them manage that, understand the risk and manage it from there. Let me ask you about the, which family members. So are we talking about a mother or a sister or an aunt or a cousin who had ovarian cancer? Is that it or is it just your parents? So really it can come from either side of the family. It can be maternal or paternal risk or through those lineages. And you can have people who have known risk in siblings, either parent or in extended family, aunts, uncles, or cousins. And there is enough general awareness of the relationship between the genetic predisposition genes and the cancer risk to flag those for most practitioners so that patients will get that information. And then we encourage them to share it with family members. Now, why does this study look at surgery as a potential solution? So to understand that, I would like for us to go back to some of the background and say, why is this study necessary and why is it surgery that's part of the study? Okay. So where we are right now is essentially about 20 years of uh, knowledge synthesized uh, into development of this study. So on one side, I'm going to talk about understanding ovarian cancer risk. And in that, with the identification of major risk factor genes, such as the BRCA1 and 2 genes, where mutations would give people increased risk, we've known that from going through the mid-90s. And that has led to development of 
strategies for managing risk and a number of things have been tried in the realm of screening, prevention or risk reduction using surgery. And of those, the most effective method has been to remove the ovaries and fallopian tubes. And people have studied that and the literature supports that there is tremendous value and a significant reduction in risk when you do the surgical interventions, whereas we're not great at screening and prevention using medical modalities. Okay, so that's on one end. Then as we've gone on, biological assessments of the precursors for ovarian cancer going back decades have not really shown us a true precursor lesion in the ovary as you see in multiple other cancers. You can take examples of breast or colon cancer and you see precursor lesions. We never really saw those in the ovary. And then in the last decade, decade and a half or so, we found that there are precursor lesions that are present in the fallopian tubes. So the, that's led to the belief that the genesis may not be in the ovary at all, but may be in the fallopian tubes to start with. So that now brings us to a functional understanding of what these organs are doing, where you can draw on our knowledge of the different organs. We're talking about two different things here. The fallopian tube, which is essentially connecting the uterus to the ovary and allowing for transit of egg and sperm and fertilization within the fallopian tube. But beyond that, it doesn't really have functions beyond fertility preservation. It doesn't have functions for hormonal activity for the female. On the other hand, the ovaries produce eggs, but they also produce hormones. And there, what we know now from drawing on large studies of things like the Women's Health Initiative, that we've had now available to us for review for the last 20 years or so, that the hormones uh, coming from the ovaries are significantly impactful in preserving health for women. And that's pretty much for every body system uh, you can think of. In the short term, that can be things like mood, sleep, disturbances, uh, sexual function. And in the long term, it can range from cholesterol management, heart disease, cognitive function, bone health, and other impacts. So you are coming to the realization that the risk source may be the fallopian tube. And the ovary is potentially uh, a source, but may just be a bystander that gets involved in the cancer process. And then the ovary has significant functional benefit for the individual and you're giving up on that when you take the ovaries out if you were able to let a woman keep her ovaries you would like that as long as you can assure her that her risk for ovarian cancer is removed by taking the fallopian tubes out Exactly. So you're basically taking all of this functional information, the pathologic information that we've gained over time to say we have risk, we have the source of risk, we have benefit of this other organ, can we truly preserve it or time its removal such that you get most of the benefit before it's surgically removed. And that brings us to the study, the salpingo-oophorectomy to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer study. Let me ask you before we get into that, sure. if we think that most ovarian cancers start in the fallopian tubes, will we stop calling it 
ovarian cancer? It depends on what kind of philosophy you have. We're not going to walk away from calling it ovarian cancer for a long time. Uh, a lot of the studies that we know about treatment of the disease, literature is all going to call it ovarian cancer. In the end, there is significant involvement of the uh, ovaries with the uh, disease, whether it's arising from the fallopian tube or the ovary. And we can't completely eliminate the ovary as a primary source of the cancer. So in a purist sort of a way, I would say that, yes, we may at some point get to a point where we can differentiate and call them for what they are based on their genesis. So we may have fallopian tube cancers that are a major category and ovary cancer is a minor category rather than the reverse, which is as it exists right now. They are similar enough in our understanding of how they uh, behave that for the purposes of our current treatment and discussions, they are considered the same. This is Upstate's HealthLink on Air. I'm your host, Amber Smith, talking with Dr. Rinki Agarwal about a study that is looking for women at high genetic risk for developing ovarian cancer. So what can you tell us about this trial? I know it's sponsored by the National Cancer Institute. What is it set up to do? In short, it's called SOROC, which stands for salpingo-oophorectomy to reduce the risk of ovarian cancer. And it is a study that is available currently for enrollment at Upstate. And it's sponsored by NRG Oncology, which is part of the National Cancer Institute Community Oncology Research Program. So it's a national study to evaluate the strategy for managing risk in patients who have an identified mutation in a BRCA1 gene for future development of ovarian cancer. So how many women are you looking for and what are their ages? For the study nationally, they're looking to enroll just under 2,300 women between the ages of 35 to 50. And they would be looking to have certain things to include patients in the study. They have to have a known mutation in the BRCA1 gene, and they still have their fallopian tubes. And is there anything that would disqualify someone from participating? Well, people who already have ovarian or fallopian tube cancer as the start of where they gathered this information would not be candidates uh, for this study. But pretty much everybody else, and if the fallopian tubes have already been removed as part of some prior surgical process, those patients would be excluded. But otherwise, everybody else is a candidate for it. I want to let listeners know that they can call a local number to the Upstate Cancer Center to learn more about this trial at 315-464-8200. And if they have friends in other parts of the country, the National Cancer Information Center at one 800 cancer that's 1-800-422-6237, can also provide information. Can you walk us through what happens when someone joins the trial? Is this person going to meet with you or another doctor to help decide which surgery she'll have? Absolutely. All four gynecologic oncologists in our practice are able to see patients and enroll them in the trial. So they could certainly see me or one of the other physicians in the practice. And what would happen is that they would have an initial interview. They can come in with this information or we're pretty much screening every patient that comes through that may be eligible 
for this trial to be considered for the trial. They're given information and given some time to think about it. Now, the time to think about it is something that I encourage patients to do in the context of this particular scenario. They have a BRCA1 mutation. They're trying to manage the risk of ovarian cancer, and we're talking about risk management. So that time to think about the study is something that I would consider as standard of care anyways. And once they've gone through the information and considered it, it's an option for them to proceed with enrolling for the trial. And then within the trial, it is patient choice on whether or not they would be in the arm of doing the current standard, which is to remove both tubes and ovaries after the age of 35, or if they were to choose the salpingectomy arm with a subsequent delayed oophorectomy at a later point after the age of uh, 40 to 45. So those would be the two arms uh, that the patient would be enrolled in, but it would be patient choice. Does the trial pay for the surgery or does the woman's health insurance cover the surgery? So the uh, trial's intent is to collect information. The uh, billing for the service is done through insurance. And the burden for the patient in terms of participating in the trial is predominantly that they are answering questions, they're allowing the trial to access their medical records, and they're allowing them to store a sample of blood for any biomarkers that we may find have utility uh, for patients in the future. So those things would be covered by the trial, the maintenance of those records that they've collected, but the study would not cover the surgeries. What is the follow-up like? Are there visits after the surgery? There are visits after the surgery that are also considered standard of care, and that would be uh, the points where we would assess for outcomes. How are they doing by way of quality of life preservation and the future risk of cancer? And that's all collected as part of standard of care, but would also be then given to the trial as long as the patient consents, continues to consent to do so. How would you counsel women who join this study to be on the lookout for signs or symptoms of ovarian cancer after they've had the surgery? So for lack of a better description, the signs and symptoms of ovarian cancer are relatively subtle, and it has been in the media called uh, silent disease. I do not believe that it's silent. It's more that you have to be aware because there is such subtlety to the signs and symptoms that you can frequently attribute those symptoms to other diseases before you think of ovarian cancer as the uh, potential problem in a majority of those instances. So first, uh, to specify that there are some characteristics and symptoms that patients will have if they have the disease. And then for what those symptoms may be, frequently more abdominal symptoms than symptoms uh, elsewhere in the body. And those can range from bloating, which we would define as just a sense of being very full or getting full too quickly. They find that they can't eat as much, but their abdomen or the belly feels very full. Abdominal pain or pressure, change in how they're moving their bowels, and then other range of symptoms can be things like shortness of breath, loss of weight. 
And these are persistent. So anything that's lasting over a couple of weeks is something that would suggest that it requires further evaluation. And they can stem from numerous other potential differential diagnoses. But we, in this context, for this particular discussion, we're talking about patients who had identified increased risk of ovarian cancer. So for them to be thinking about this as a higher potential differential diagnosis would be important. What would you say are the benefits of a woman participating in a trial like this? So the benefit may not be evident to us for a few years until these trial results are available to us. But the idea of the study is that with the counseling and with all of the information provided, the patients who choose something like the salpingectomy arm by their own choice are not committed to that alone. They can cross over to the salpingo-oophorectomy arm at any point. And even if they were to stay with the salpingectomy arm, have a planned oophorectomy sometime in the future. We don't know what the answer of the ultimate findings of the trial is, but the trial has been carefully designed in order to minimize the risk of uh, ovarian cancer or choose patients who are at the lowest risk of uh, ovarian cancer and have the maximum benefit from retention of the ovaries. So if in fact the findings of this study show that the salpingectomy alone arm was good, then those patients would have gained from choosing that option along the way. Okay. And then there is the larger benefit. We're at a point where this is the logical next thing that we have to evaluate to minimize the impact of our recommendations on women's lives. So they would be contributing to our understanding and management of the risk tremendously by participating in this study. Once again, the local phone number, if people are interested, is 315-464-8200, and that goes to the Upstate Cancer Center. My guest has been Dr. Rinki Agarwal. She's an Associate Professor of Obstetrics and Gynecology and the Medical Director of the Upstate Cancer Center's Gynecologic Oncology Program, as well as the Director of the Upstate Cancer Center's Genetics Program. I'm Amber Smith for Upstate's HealthLink on Air.